You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. With me today is accessibility consultant, disability rights advocate, author, and speaker, Rose Finlay. After a catastrophic injury at the age of 17 that left her a quadriplegic, Rose has continued to push the boundaries of societal norms and expectations surrounding disability. A mama to three little boys and a successful entrepreneur and disability advocate, her unstoppable spirit and ferociously positive attitude inspire her to chase her lifelong goals, despite the challenges of being a quadriplegic and recovering from an autoimmune condition. She is eager to help bridge the gaps between disabled communities and advocate for changes that result in equal access to opportunity. Rose, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. I'm so excited to have you here. We met in October of last year, and I have been following your journey ever since. And what a journey it's been, even in just a short period of time that I've known you. It is always forever changing. Um, that's kind of kind of my thing. I'm a chameleon. Go with the flow. <laughs> Life is always throwing um, obstacles and challenges my way, and navigating that seems to be my strong suit. So, ooh, okay. So let's talk about some of those challenges and obstacles, which I imagine the nature of them changed when you were 17. Can you share what happened that changed your life forever? I sure can. So I was actually 16. It was nine days before my 17th birthday. And uh, I was an active athlete. Um, I was super independent. I was actually taking, finishing my high school courses correspondence so that way I could work full time. And um, I was the weekend of August long weekend. Yesterday was the anniversary. I call it my rebirth day uh, that I, 14 years ago, I broke my neck and it was the Sunday night of the long weekend. I had to work the next day. So it was a little bit late and I got enticed into kind of a late night swim at about 1030. And when I left the house, it was a little bit chillier than I was expecting. So I kind of did like a fast paced walk slash jog to the pool and I tripped on the pool deck on my way in, ended up hitting my head on the bottom of the swimming pool. So it's, it's been a crazy 14 years since that day. Um, a lot of those have been spent adapting in many, many different ways, but also like everyone else's life, I continue to grow and take on new roles. So becoming a mother, that was a huge transition for me. One that I'd like to think that I'm a little bit comfortable, a little bit more comfortable in now than I was almost eight years ago when my first son was born. So yeah. Wow. What was it like going through some of your most formative years while coming to terms that, you know, with the fact that things would probably never be like they were? Truthfully, I think I lived in denial for at least the first four years, I'd say. Um, I mean, I, I came to terms with it in 
different ways. So for instance, when I started off, they told me that I would be fortunate to even be able to breathe on my own without a ventilator. Wow. So from being 16, 17, um, my spirit was somewhat the same in that, you know, I looked at the doctors and said, like, who do you think you are <laughs> to put limitations on me and what I'm going to do with my life? So um, that still rings true. That's kind of like where I'm at. If anyone says, I bet you can't, my response is, ha, watch me. So, just wait. <laughs> yeah, just watch. It's, uh, it's coming. So um, yeah, I've always had that determined spirit to kind of push through all of the adaptations. In the beginning, I uh, wouldn't, or I didn't want to, they'd like, in the rehab hospital, they give you many different tools and resources to do things. And one of them that stands out to me is they rigged up this little contraption for my hand so I could hold a fork or a spoon. And I thought to myself, like, how inefficient is this? I am not going to be toting around a big bag of all my gizmos that I can just hook up and do whatever. You know, I want the skills, the foundation to be able to do these things um, without needing these tools. Mm -hmm. So like, can we work on that? Like, why are we working on this when that's like, as soon as I get out of here, I'm not going to use any of this basically. So in my eyes, the the first three months that I was in rehab were uh, almost a complete waste because I didn't really learn any of the skills that I needed to live my life. They were teaching me the skills and giving me the tools to live the life that they were kind of projecting for me. Mm. and that just didn't work. I am known for doing things my way, um, and my family now, well, has pointed out to me, uh, as much as it has pained them to see me make, you know, some not-so-great decisions, they can acknowledge that had I not lived this life the way that I wanted to and by my own design, um, I wouldn't be living it to the fullest the way that I am. Wow. That is so powerful. And what I think is such a testament to your strength. I mean, at that age, you're thinking prom and you're thinking about having crushes and what college or university are you going to go to? And here you are trying to optimize and enhance the way that you are going to get through the rest of your life in thinking that, no, this is, you know, don't put limitations on me. I'm going to be doing far more than you think possible which is huge. Yeah, it's been kind of like a resounding theme in my life. Um, And at the time, uh, I broke my neck in my boyfriend at the time's pool. He broke up with me while I was in rehab, go figure. Um, It was just, it was a lot of change. My friends were all going off to university and college and I wasn't. There were a lot of hard blows, uh, but the friends that, went off to college. Um, the ones that are true friends are still in my life. So I'm grateful for that. Um, yeah, it was definitely different than what everyone else was experiencing, but even from a young age, I have always been someone who doesn't back down from an opportunity, even if it is a challenge or it's scary or it's, you know, old people, you know, quads don't usually do that. For instance, have three children. Um, 
So I was like, oh, well, that's uh, great that that's how everyone else does it, but that's not going to work for me. So uh, having kids was a lifelong dream of mine, uh, goal, if you will. And I wasn't going to let, you know, this change that. And sure, there are a lot of things. Um, dis disabled parents are so stigmatized and scrutinized um, in the world. But I feel like there is such huge value that I contribute to my kids' lives in that I'm teaching them love and empathy and understanding. Um, and I'm super proud of them for that. So, Oh, that's so wonderful. And I see their pictures and they just look like three of the cutest boys I've literally ever seen. And they look like really happy kids. I mean, they don't look like they're missing out on anything. No, it, it really, it takes a village to raise a child. And that is one thing that I've been extremely fortunate um, with is creating that community and that village of people who love and support my children um, and can fill in the gaps and be an extension of me uh, when needed. So I know that you simply wouldn't accept the reality of not having kids, but did it ever feel along your journey that that dream was a little out of reach or a little harder to want to move towards at some point? Absolutely. Uh, when I was first injured, obviously being young and a whole lot more stubborn than I am now, um, originally I said, absolutely not. Um, I was really crushed by the prospect of not having kids. Um, but initially I had said like, no, I won't have children because I don't feel that it would be fair to them to have a parent that isn't capable of doing all of the things, um, a mother who isn't capable of doing all of the things. But as I grew and matured, you know, those viewpoints changed and I became a little bit more grounded and wiser to accepting help um, and still just seeing my own value, my own worth. At 17, you struggle with self-worth as it is, and then you take an injury that essentially strips you of all of the things in your life that you find joy in. Mm. Um, for me, it was sports and athletics. So not having that outlet and being able to do that left me feeling very bewildered and like, well, what, where do I go from here? What, what do I do? Um, so really it's just, it's been a journey of realizing my self-worth. And what do you find has been most helpful in regaining or refining how you view yourself? Um, reflection and lots of it, meditation. More so than that, just finding the right community, uh, the people who are going to tell it to you straight mm. and help you grow, kind of stretch you and hold space for you. That really, for me, has been pivotal. Do you feel that there are people who are hesitant to give it to you straight because they fear saying the wrong thing or hurting your feelings or just not knowing how to approach certain topics or situations? Absolutely, there are. And there are also there's people on both ends of that spectrum. There's the people who uh, really aren't in a position to be telling it to me straight, uh, as we all know, <laughs> all the social media trolls. Um, you know, there are people who aren't in my inner circle who have no business giving me their opinions and telling me, you know, 
telling it to me straight, so to speak, from their perspective. Um, but then, you know, there are the people in the middle who are kind of wishy-washy and don't know what to say, don't want to use the wrong language, don't want to uh, hurt my feelings, don't, you know, and that's understandable, but that's where uh, my new business center is hoping to kind of shed some light and bring some awareness to, you know, how we can have these conversations. People are still um, entitled to being curious, but that doesn't mean that they are entitled to the answer or the knowledge that they're curious about. So it's just about finding balance. The people that are closest to me in my inner circle that I trust, they are absolutely not afraid to tell it to me straight uh, and or hurt my feelings because, well, that's kind of part of being an adult. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt. Mm -hmm. And it's knowledge and input that we need to kind of go from where we're at to where we should be. Mm. I want to talk about your new business venture because I've been following your recent posts and a lot of them have been really enlightening and have surprised me because I'm someone who considers myself to be quite self-aware, to be um, quite aware of others. And still a lot of your posts have made me raise my brows and think, wow, there's so much more that I can be doing. And a lot of your recent conversations and the awareness that you're bringing is around the topic of albeism. And it's something that you're committed to bringing to the surface and dismantling. For those who are listening who may not be familiar with it, can you explain what albeism is and why you're on a mission to really bring it to the forefront? So just as a little correction, it's ableism. A ableism. Um, oh my goodness, yes. I've got it spelled wrong in my notes. Here. <laughs> Awareness, learning. Right, there we go. So ableism. Um, Which makes so much more sense. I was like, why? Why albeism? Yeah, no, it's, so it's ableism. And ableism, by definition, is just discrimination against people, disabled people. Um, and so discrimination has been so prevalent, and it's always in undertones. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of shed light on all of these minorities that are, you know, swirling around that we do silently discriminate against, obviously, um, you know, with racism, it's a lot more loud. Whereas with ableism, it is just simply the lack of foresight into making things accessible for everyone, uh, which essentially facilitates the inner dialogue of internalized ableism. So when you have venues or events that are not accessible to people with disabilities, you are instantly telling them you're not welcome, you're part of a world, you're part of a community that is not equipped to make the accommodations that you need in order to have access to the things that everyone else has. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to kind of break down for everyone because it's something that I myself have struggled with even in, uh, you know, in the business world for the last four to five years is I'm seen as less than someone who can do my job and is able-bodied you know people see a wheelchair or a disability and they automatically think like ah oh, there's some things that person can't do instead of seeing oh you know this person still has to do 
every, you know, everyday tasks that everyone else has to do, uh, but they have to figure out very creative ways of doing it. Um, that as, as far as I'm concerned, that should be seen as a strong suit because you're managing more as a disabled person than an able-bodied person. Right. Absolutely. We're coming off the heels of Disability Pride Month, and one of the things that you mentioned in a recent post was that the reality is that the disabled community is one of the minority groups that anyone can be part of at any time, which was one of those things I mentioned, which was kind of an eyebrow raiser for me, where when you think of it and you're like, well, well yes, that makes sense, but unless there's been a reason to think about it, there's a tendency for these things to be out of sight, out of mind, and as with any social justice work, that's what we try to bring awareness to. And there's a lot to unpack and unlearn and understand in order to enact positive changes in these areas. So can you help us in understanding what support is needed that would significantly impact the disabled community? Beyond ramps, you know, like beyond the things that we're thinking, oh, we don't have the ability to make that change for our employer. Like what can we do as individuals? So something that, uh, thank you, COVID has come up is um, prior to COVID, as a disabled person looking for work, um, the ability to find a work from home position was very difficult. And you had a lot of employers saying like, nope, we just can't work with that. Even if, you know, it's a desk job, uh, it's possible to work remotely. No one was willing to make those accommodations. And instead they, they hid behind the narrative of, you know, our infrastructure is just not built for that. Um, you know, a gamut of all kinds of reasons why. And now that COVID kind of forced their hand, it's like, oh, so you could have done this all, of long, all along and made these accommodations and included people with disabilities, um, but you chose not to. And that right there is a very good example of what this silent discrimination looks like. Uh, same with school options. You know, we, prior to this, you know, a lot of courses weren't offered online. And all of a sudden, because people's livelihood was at stake, we found ways to make it work. But your livelihood has always been at stake. Right, exactly. Mm. But now that, now that the rest of the world has kind of seen how volatile the workforce really is, there's been some huge changes in how we're doing things and how we're seeing things. For instance, even just the fact that um, employers now have to accommodate, oh, you're in quarantine for two weeks, no big deal. Like, okay. Whereas, you know, that would have been something that had hindered an employer before is hiring a disabled person. Well, what if they have, you know, a health complication? Oh, like that doesn't work for us. Well, it mm. didn't work for you then, but now all of a sudden, because the government has come down and said, these are the rules and regulations, we're making changes. So that message right there sends like, that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is to try and help bridge the gaps between, uh, you know, mainstream culture and the disability community um, because that fact alone sends a very strong message. And that's not conducive to working together because if you have a whole bunch of disabled people whose feelings are now hurt or, you know, they're kind of put off from like, well, you couldn't do that for us before because you didn't see value in us, like 
instead of that being the dialogue in the heads of or in the minds of you know many disabled people and the disabled community as a whole um, I'm kind of hoping to get businesses working alongside you know more of the disability community and making this kind of come together making things right the way they really should have been all along I mean it was um, disability pride month the reason it's in July is to kind of represent the 30th anniversary of the ADA, which is the American Disability Act. We don't have that in Canada. Canada is hugely lacking in uh, disability rights laws and protecting these minorities. And what does that act enable? How does that support the disability community? So, I mean, there are all kinds of different um, facets to the American Disability Act, but it's, it basically gives disabled people in America the power to take legal action um, against people and businesses that aren't doing their part to make things accessible. So ramps, accessible washrooms, um, that sort of thing. Hmm. Whereas in Canada, we have some kind of bylaws, but they're really wishy-washy and, um, you know, a lot of businesses skirt that. And to a certain extent, you know, it's understandable if you have, say, you know, a store that's selling Stairmasters and they're not accessible. Well, as, and when I say accessible, I mean like physically, mobility-wise accessible. Right. Um, you know, obviously the people who can't get into the store, aren't going to buy a Stairmaster. That said, why should we feel like we couldn't go there? You know, it's, for me, it's all about human connection and understanding that even, you know, disabled people with varying disabilities, they're still people. Mm -hmm. We still want to be included. We, uh, for instance, myself, I, in the business world in the last five years, have encountered lots of business events that weren't necessarily set up uh, to be accessible or inclusive. And I reached out privately and said, hey, this is my situation. Um, these are the accommodations that I would need in order to attend. And, you know, I think there's a lot of value in your event. Um, and more times than not, I've had such great success in getting those accommodations made mm -hmm. but there are so many voices within the disabled community that aren't confident enough to stand up and say hey i know i'm different uh here's my situation you know a lot of people just kind of go like uh i don't want to you know inconvenience them and what if they say no and then i have to deal with feeling rejected like there's so many different dialogues surrounding that um that prohibit people from reaching out and asking. And that's kind of what I want to really break down for people and just blow, blow it wide open, like have these conversations. How can we make our events, our businesses, our like whatever it is, how can we make it more inclusive? How can we make it less intimidating for people who don't have the confidence to stand up and say, these are my needs. 
Mm. But how important is allyship in that conversation? Because even with all the hands going up of the people in the disabled community, I can imagine it would it could just be amplified with the support of able-bodied people saying, yeah, guys, this is something we seriously need to consider. Right. And we, that's what I'm kind of grateful to the Black Lives Matter movement for is they have really opened up the topic of discrimination and kind of allowed us to step in and stand on their platform with them and saying, yeah, because they're even within the black community, there are tons of black disabled people and their voices are ringing even louder and saying like, not only are we discriminated against by the color of our skin, but also by the fact that we're disabled. Mm -hmm. Um, And so allyship is probably one of my biggest goals in, you know, bringing this to the forefront and saying like, hey, how can we do better? Um, Is getting people on board and educating. Like education is such a huge part of um, inclusive solutions, which is my new project. So Inclusive Solutions by Rose Finley is going to have a consulting aspect where I can step in uh, to people who already have events, um, classes, businesses kind of already established and say, okay, let's look at this. How can we do better and keep the costs low? Because that is obviously something that people look at is, you know, is being inclusive cost prohibitive? Because in the world of business, you know, dollars talk. So it's all about kind of working, playing within the limits and still being inclusive, not breaking the budget. Um, And so that's one consulting service that Inclusive Solutions will be offering, but also um, the teaching aspect, which is just helping people understand um, even, you know, how certain language is ableist and, um, really just pinpointing where we can do better, how we can better educate people, um, and just kind of helping other people within the disabled community really shine through on their strengths instead of being seen as just a disabled person. Mm. So there's something you mentioned earlier, which ties back to what you've just said in the importance of language. And I, I kind of want to dig deeper into it because I've, I've had a few conversations with different friends and I, I have a, there's just been a difference of opinion in using the word different. And so earlier when you were saying, you know, some people have a hard time putting up their hand, reaching out to organizations and saying like, Hey, I'm different or I have different needs. Is that something, in your opinion, that you have seen as something that perhaps has kept you small at times and saying, yes, I am different? Or is that something that you can proudly own? Or is there a spectrum of emotion in between? Oh, goodness. There's always a spectrum of emotion, especially, um, I mean, right, there's there's two different kind of categories within um, the physically disabled community anyways. And that is, well all disabilities really, were you born with it or did you acquire it? And so, I mean, on both ends of the spectrum, it's 
it varies. It's, you know, some days, sure, you stand tall and proud and I'm different and this is who I am. Um, but for me personally, because my disability was acquired, um, meaning that I wasn't born with it, uh, I went through a huge period of, you know, that challenging my self-worth and really kind of digging deep to find out why being different is a good thing. I've always been kind of just different in a lot of ways, lone wolf, doing my own thing. Um, but my disability for me was, I don't want to say an embarrassment, but something that I tried to hide for a very long time. And that's because I didn't want people to see my wheelchair. I wanted them to see me, but I struggled with finding the balance between, you know, hiding my disability and just being disabled and proud. So yeah, I think that I can't speak from the perspective of someone who was born with a disability, but I would imagine that um, from what I've gathered um, in talking to other disabled friends that, you know, they go through the same kind of um, processes just based on societal ableism. It's, you can be going through your day, feel on top of the world, know what you're doing, and then experience something that just brings you back down to mm-hmm. like, whoa, I am different. You know, like, ugh. there are, you experience so many uh, different complications, for instance, um, you know, with caregiving. You can have the best day planned out. I could be, you know, doing a bunch of calls, going to a meeting, going here, doing that. Um, and then my morning starts off by, uh, you know, a support person, a care provider not showing up well how does that affect then the rest of my day then you know that takes you into the mental space of having to reschedule and explain to all of the people that you had plans with why you can't be there and just that like that vulnerability and that explanation uh, can be very trying even on someone who is totally confident in what they do and the value that they bring to the table because it it just brings it right back to the forefront of there are a lot of things that I can't do that everyone else can. And in those moments, how do you, I don't want to say get out of that headspace because I think it's it's a process to work through. It's not just about getting out of it, but how do you emerge from that place where you're feeling that kind of wallowing in that low? You feel it out. Like there, I, that is one thing that I have learned uh, over the last 14 years is that sometimes you just have to sit with it um, and feel it. And the more that I've kind of mastered that skill of being able to sit with uncomfortable feelings, um, the faster I kind of pull myself out of it. Mm. So that's one of the aspects that I'm hoping to streamline and make easier with accessibility consulting is, and with the teaching aspect of it is helping people to understand, you know, why uh, having some leniency and understanding towards these situations is important because there's so many things that, you know, people don't necessarily take into account. For instance, for me, um, I typically don't book morning appointments. And that's because it takes me three hours 
to get up in the morning to have a shower, go to the bathroom, you know, get dressed, get up, have some eat. It takes me three hours. What an able-bodied person can typically do in a half an hour, it takes me three. Mm. And so many people don't have that knowledge or that understanding. And sure, I'm sure there are tons of people who think like, you know, she's a slacker. She doesn't do anything in the morning. Um, but that said, that's also why, you know, a nine to five job doesn't work for most disabled people. Mm -hmm. They have care schedules that they have to work around. So finding, you know, work that's flexible, finding an employer that can accommodate work from home, finding an employer that, um, you know, is understanding of illnesses and things that come up. It's not easy. And it, the government support that we are given here in Canada and in the States is not enough. Mm -hmm. We're forcing disabled people to live below the poverty line and we're not giving them any other options to live a different life. Which reminds me of one of your other posts that I found really memorable was when you started to explain that you got into entrepreneurship and started your own business because there simply was no other option. Mm -hmm. And yes, you have a ton of knowledge and yes, you love what you do, but that when there's only one road to go down, it's a reality that able-bodied people don't have to think about. There are options. There are different roads to take. And has has that decision to go into business, is it ever something that you have resented because it is the only option? Personally, for me, I have always been someone who enjoys helping people. And if I could do what I do for free, I would. <laughs> hands down. Um, but that's really the only discrepancy is that I need income to survive. Mm -hmm. So um, do I resent it? No, not at all, because I am doing what I want to be doing. Um, but it's a lot because having a disability, I, I've done, you know, the breakdown online of how many hours go into managing my personal care schedule. Um, how many hours go into parenting, how many hours go into being an entrepreneur. And it really is like having three full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. So like I never stop. I don't really have downtime. So it's fine. I'm not complaining. I look forward to the day when I do have more downtime. But um, a couple of years ago when I experienced a critical illness that almost cost me my life, fighting my way back from that while still um, you know, operating my business was difficult. There's been, there's just been a lot of hurdles that have come my way that it's like, it falls on me. You know, I, the, there's no one else. I can't delegate someone else to manage my personal care schedule. I can't, well, I mean, I guess I could delegate someone to raise my kids, but that's not my <laughs> path. Um, so, you know, there's just, there's all of these roles that require all of, you know, my brain power to kind of manage and I don't know I I embrace it I think I don't really resent it and what do you do to fill your cup to kind of recharge people people refill my cup and that was something that I struggled with um I, I tell the story of when I was living completely out of alignment with who I am and after my injury I moved to a small suburban 
bedroom community of Toronto. Um, I was born and raised in Ajax, and then I moved to Bowmanville. And I moved to Bowmanville under the pretense of, I don't know anyone here. No one knows me. I can fly under the radar um, and not be seen. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't confident in my disability. I sure as heck was not prepared for the scrutiny that came with becoming a disabled mother. I had a lot more heads turn. Um, and so it was just really like all of that hiding away, not really sure, not, you know, um, and then getting critically ill sort of woke me up to like, no, this isn't, I'm not supposed to hide away from people. I have a message. I have a voice. Um, I have a purpose and this isn't it. So, um, yeah, now I'm stepping more confidently into all of my roles and embracing my disability. And that has been a huge game changer for me. And I'm so happy you have because you are a force. And when you speak, people listen. And when you write, people read. You're encouraging them to think differently, to act differently. And it's a, it's a real talent. I think you've got a skill that will serve this world in great, great ways. Well, thank you. That's such a very sweet and heartfelt compliment. Yeah. So before we kind of wrap up, I would love to know if there was one myth about the disabled community that you'd like to bust right here, right now, what would it be? Really just that disabled people aren't, you know, talented, they're not creative, they're not capable. Capable, that's the word. They're not capable. Mm-hmm. I think that people hugely underestimate the capabilities of disabled people. Um, you know, instantly taking a look at someone and saying, well, they can't walk, so they can't parent or they can't run a business um, is the farthest thing from the truth because disabled people are masters at adaptation. You want to see someone take something and run with it and create it into something that's far beyond what you've ever imagined, talk to a disabled person. Oof, I love that. Where can people follow you to learn more about your story and the work that you're doing to make this world a better place? So uh, I'm in the process of launching two websites. The first one is uh, wheelchairwonderwoman.com, which is wheelchair the number one, D-E-R, woman.com. And then my Instagram handle is the same, except there's an underscore between wheelchair and Wonder Woman, spelled with a one. Um, And then my, the website that is, you know, still in the works, which will have my shop, uh, which will have, you know, links to buy all of my books. Two new books are being published in the next two months. So look out for that. Uh, There's also, but there is pre-sale and pre-order on those books. So that will be available before the books are published. Uh, And that'll be at rosefinley.ca. And then there's always the good old Facebook. You can look me up on there. So yeah. Good old Facebook. Facebook. (laughs) I'm around on on the social media interwebs. Awesome. Rose, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I have really, really appreciated learning more about you. I knew a little bit, and I'm sure there's still a lot more to learn, but I find these conversations, you know, we really get to unearth some of the things that not only 
contributed to who you are, but start to scratch the surface on the impact that you're about to make. And I really, really, really appreciate your willingness and strength in putting your hand up and saying ableism is something that we need to tackle together. And now that I am pronouncing the word properly, I can say it with a little more confidence, but it is, it is something that we need to link arms and do as a collective. And I think it's really empowering what you're doing. And I'm so excited to learn more about it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to kind of push this forward and start having the hard conversations that, you know, we tend to not want to have. And I think it's important. So I am always open and willing to have chats with anyone kind of looking to optimize their business and make it more inclusive. Um, yeah. So anyone who's interested, get at me. Let's chat. Let's, uh, let's start making changes and making the world a more inclusive place for everybody. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.